1: Pearl white just a jack knife has old Maggie Heath, baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bite. So welcome
2: well, everybody to this latest edition of Matt Take. Me Andy Clark and Matt Macklin with you as always. I hope everybody's well hanging in there. And today we're doing something a little bit different, something that we've not really done yet. And I've been very much looking forward to this because we're going to take you back to a key date in boxing history. One of the biggest fights of recent times and what will probably remain one of the, the biggest fights in boxing folklore for, for many years to come. If anything, the mystique and drama of it will just increase uh, as the years Advance. It occurred on the 6th of April 1987 at the outdoor arena at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'll just allow that date to percolate with the Macklin's Take listeners. I'm sure some of you will have managed to bolt on the name of the fight, the people involved in that fight as soon as you heard that date. But We're going to get into this fight from all aspects, right into the bones of it, under the skin of it, because it had two very different protagonists who took two very different journeys to that squared circle that night. And we're going to trace all of that back. We're going to look at their career paths and see how they did in the end converge because it looked like they wouldn't. Then all of a sudden they did. There was so much drama around the fight in the build-up. And then in the aftermath, controversy that... Still rages today, really, uh, about the decision. People still talk about it. We were just arguing about it before, before I press record. Now, the fight, as many of you will be aware, was marvellous Marvin Hagler against Sugar Ray Leonard for the WBC middleweight title. It was a genuine super fight, and the 80s was a rich decade for that, due to the four kings in no small way, of which, of course, Hagler and Leonard were an extremely important half... But this is one that's always really particularly interested me because of everything that went into it. And we've got the perfect man to talk to us about it because esteemed author Brian Dugan joins us and he is writing a book. He has written a book about this exact fight uh, called Super Fight, which is the most apt title for it. It's out soon. Uh, And first things first, Brian, thanks very much for, for tipping us off about this because, as I say, we haven't really done this kind of thing before. We've talked about fights with fighters and that's great, but at the same time, you are just getting one side of the story there unless you manage to get the pair of them on. So, so it's really good to kind of look at something with just that little bit of distance and objectivity because I think when you do that, you can really get to the, get to the heart of the matter. So just just tell the Macklins Take listeners about your journey in boxing. What, what brought you to boxing and then what, what really sucked you into this particular fight?
0: Well, listen, uh, first of all, thank you very much for, to you both for having me on. Um, uh, Matt as well, uh, you as well, Andy. Um, really looking forward to it and looking forward to, to the chat that we'll have. But uh, as you say, you've summed it up really well. It was, uh, it was a, a classic fight, uh, one of the big, great fights of the 1980s when there were so many of them. And as you say, these two guys were, were two of the four kings, but it was almost the, the centerpiece of that whole era because uh, Ray Leonard had beaten both Roberto Duran and Thomas Hearns. And of course, Hagler had, uh, had struggled to overcome Roberto Duran in his middleweight title defense, uh, but then he had destroyed uh, Tommy Hearns. Um, and so, uh, so the fight between Leonard and Hagler, which as you say, it was almost five, six years in the, in the, in the build-up to, uh, and many thought it wouldn't happen at that point because Ray had been retired and, and then came back, and we'll get into the whole specifics of it. In terms of my own background, um, uh, Hagler actually features very prominently in it. Um, the first fight I can remember, uh, quite opposite uh, in the times we are at the moment, uh, uh, was actually Hagler Minter. I was seven years old. I remember watching the fight with my dad. I saw these two guys climb into the boxing ring, and I was totally scared about uh, what I was witnessing uh, as as they as they set about one another. Um, and uh, as it happens, uh, Marvin Hagler, you know, went in and destroyed Alan Minter that night. Uh, so no wonder a seven year old would be scared. But uh, but that was also the time of. Uh, of Barry McGuigan, um, and Barry McGuigan was a, a massive part of, of my youth. Um, I'm sure in terms of, Matt, uh, with your Irish background, you will understand as well as anybody just how big a, a person uh, Barry McGuigan was uh, at that time. Um, there wasn't much going on in Northern Ireland that was, was, was on the positive side at that time. And he came along, and of course won the, the world featherweight title. But uh, but united the people uh, in a sense uh, behind a uh, flag of peace when there was a there was a war going on. Um, and so boxing became a, a central passion in my life. Sport in general was a was always a big passion. I played uh, Gaelic football. I didn't play hurling because we were terrible at hurling, uh, Matt. Uh, you're a Tipperary man. You're you're from a county that can play hurling. For Mano people, honestly, when they wield sticks, they might as well be, you know, wielding feathers. Uh, so uh, uh, Gaelic football was my sport. Uh, played a bit of football as well. Um, I uh, was so interested in in sport um, that I wanted to uh, to get to the heart of it, and uh, my way of doing that. Was to become a a sports writer. And uh, I was only 14 years old when I started writing for my local newspaper, uh, covering uh, football games. And I was actually only 16 years old when I sent off a letter to Steve Farhood, whom I know you have spoken to recently on this very podcast. Uh, I wrote to Steve and said I could cover the fights in the UK. A guy called Ron Oliver had been the UK correspondent for decades on the ring. And the ring had actually been bought over by uh, a new proprietor, Stanley Weston. Um, Steve had been the editor of KO Magazine. He became the editor of the ring magazine. Uh, the new issues came out. There was no, no one covering the UK section. And I wrote off as a 16-year-old from St. Michael's College in Enniskillen as a student and said, I could cover this for you, uh, the audacity of it when I look back. And, uh, but, I, but I did. He was, he was terrific. Uh, he uh, said I could do the job for him, and uh, and that's basically how I started. And uh, I was uh, passionate about the sport. I was passionate about sport in general. I always felt that uh, that you could find a, a, a truth about uh, about people, about life through the prism of sport. And I kind of uh, I kind of went about it in that way. And uh, and over the years, Andy, uh, you're like myself. You've spent probably more time maybe in football, or certainly I have. Um, I also covered tennis, golf. Um, I covered Super Bowls. Uh, very fortunate uh, over, over my career. Spent a lot of time in football, but the truth is, in terms of the access that you got always in boxing, that was special. And in terms of what I wanted to do, in terms of finding out about, about life a little bit through through the prism of sport, I found that you could do that much better uh, and more fundamentally in boxing than perhaps you could in any other sport. So that's a that's a long-winded way of uh, of how I went about it. I uh, from the ring that opened doors in terms of I I, I started my first job in the Lancashire Evening Telegraph in Blackburn. Um, I was a, a sports reporter, predominantly football. Um, my first day in the Lancashire Evening Telegraph, uh, Blackburn Rovers were the Newly crowned Premier League champions Kenny Delglish, uh decided to move upstairs and become director of football, and Ray Harford became the manager. And that was my first day in the job, uh, so it was uh, it was uh, it was a uh, it was, uh, it was uh, a welcome to uh, journalism, which uh, which kind of put you uh, made you feel that uh, the job would be a, a testing one going forward. So I spent two years on the Lancashire Evening Telegraph, joined the Daily Express um, started doing the boxing for the express that was around the time of, uh, Nassim Hamid. Um, Lennox Lewis was, uh, of course, trying to win the world heavyweight title, uh, the undisputed uh, world heavyweight title. He was in pursuit of at that time. Um, I spent five years on the daily express joined the Sunday times, uh, was able to continue doing the boxing for the Sunday times. And then I spent a decade in football, uh, with Aston Villa and Everton. So, uh, but I've really enjoyed getting back into uh, into the boxing through this book, um, and it certainly is uh, a worthy subject in terms of getting your teeth into it because there's just so much to it in terms of the two guys, the two protagonists, uh, and the supporting cast around it, and the fact that the fight was it was a special fight that was it was, uh, it was uh, a fight that uh, even to this day is is debated, as you said, in terms of uh, the controversy over the decision, the fact that they had their opposing, contrasting styles, and uh, I guess it's a fight that will always be be up there. And I felt that uh, it was a fight that could be chronicled in a in a different kind of way than had been done before, and that's why I've gone about it.
2: No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, and before we go any further, let's let's get our cards on the table here. Are we Hagler or are we Hearns uh, or Leonard? Should I say, gentlemen? Which which one? And I'm going to go first and I'm going to cop out immediately because I I never really kind of picked out Sporting Heroes. I've never really done that. Even with Ben Eubank, which really sucked me into boxing, which came two or three years after this, of course. I was fascinated by Eubank, but I wouldn't have been heartbroken if Ben had beaten him. I just wanted the kind of best man on the night to win. I've, I've always been that way. With these two, I was more Hagler Than I was Leonard. I I think when I look back on it in retrospect, because I was nine when the fight took place, and I was aware of it, but I didn't take an enormous amount of interest in it at that point. But again, if if Leonard did turn out to win, of course, and it didn't, you know, it didn't send me into the into the depths of of despair. Did either of you two have more firm allegiances? Let's let's start with you, Macklin. Where was your where was your heart? Where was your head, even?
1: So, I mean, I didn't watch the fight live. I mean, I think I'd only been five years old. Uh, I hadn't even hadn't been bitten by the boxing bug yet. Um, but I did I did. I was a massive fan of the Fabulous 4 DVD or well, videotape. It was, I mean, I, I watched that so many times. I burnt it out, a bit like the Champions Forever one. But, you know, at that time, I was a big Sugar Ray Leonard fan. And, of course, it was only the highlights that we seen it, on that video and it was I think probably favoured to Sugar Ray Leonard on the video because the highlight clips of that were you know that were really Leonard kind of winning the rounds or, or certainly the highlights of it I have watched the fight since back in full and I think I've changed my mind I can see why Hagler was you know felt a little bit hard done by. it was a very close fight and as you said Andy I mean literally every single week we're talking about boxing we're doing an unofficial scorecard, and there's so many fights that are really razor thin close, and the reality is, they could have gone either way. And it sometimes does come down to what did you prefer? Was it there maybe not as many shots that were landed, but cleaner ones or more eye catching, or was it you know the, the the consistent work rate and and the amount? So and it does comes down sometimes. It is quite subjective, but I do uh, I definitely understand why Marvin Hagler feels hard done by. I think Ray Leonard was very um, he was very good at stealing the rounds, finishing strong, shoe shining as they call it, landing a big flurry. And you know, he was kind of the golden boy. He was the the, the man that, the. He was the darling, wasn't he, of the uh, of the eighties of the boxing. He was the you know the Olympic gold medalist. He was the uh, that era's golden boy. So I, I, I understand why Hagler definitely felt a little bit disgruntled.
2: So who were, who were you of the two, Brian?
0: Well, I suppose at the time, I think I was uh seduced by the by the comeback and the kind of uh romantic element of that and uh hagler of course uh he was the quintessential blue collar come forward uh trojan uh the old bald ogre uh and he and he made no bones about it i mean he cultivated what he called what he referred to as the monster inside him he he secluded himself, he went into uh, he went into COVID-19 self-isolation <laughs> up in Provincetown uh, and he did that for every fight and, and And he built up this fury inside him, he built up this rage and it was overwhelming um, and it was uh, I think that uh, you know, in terms of what Ray Leonard was attempting to do I think that's maybe what captivated me maybe more about the fight because No fighter ever in history had attempted to do what Leonard was attempting to do in terms of coming back to face such a dominant champion. This was a man whose unbeaten stretch went back 11 years, who had been champion for seven years, who should have been champion for a lot longer than that because he was actually held back from from the title. And in fact, when he did box Sancho Fermo the first time in Las Vegas, ironically, and he never forgot about this, uh, he felt that, in fact, he was the victim of larceny. Um, the judges gave it a draw. And most people would say that uh, Hagler deserved to win the fight. Um, but So what Leonard was trying to do in terms, of, uh, in terms of coming back to face such a dominant world champion, no one had pulled that off. And you have to remember as well, he'd been retired for five years. He had come back and had one fight against Kevin Howard been totally unimpressive in that in that one fight. Uh, he had suffered the first knockdown of his career in that fight. He was virtually humiliated. He actually decided during the fight he would be retiring again uh, because he was boxing that badly. And yet he then issued this challenge to this dominant champion. Um, so I guess I was captivated by the comeback, if you like. Uh, but I'm a bit like Matt in terms of if I if I, if I watched it now, I do think that Leonard actually stole the fight, but if you look at it, Marvin Hagler, um, he was the guy who made the fight, Um, he landed the the more powerful shots in the fight, Uh, but he gave away the first four rounds, in my opinion, and that's where he lost it, and that's, uh, I think that's something that he will uh, regret uh, till his dying day, in fact, the Petronelli's, Pat Petronelli said he would take it to his grave, and uh, and, I well, think and that was
1: where he came out and elected to box Orthodox instead of coming out Southpaw.
0: Yeah, absolutely,
1: He was a better Southpaw South fighter than he was Orthodox.
0: But you know what? This is where it's so interesting because what I think actually happened, and, and this is why I felt that the fight was for, worth revisiting in in, in book form. Uh, it was a massive psychic job that Ray Leonard did all the way through. Um, in terms of even even at the, even in the years when they didn't fight. Leonard kept kept it going that it was it was a rivalry that was there, but of course there's a big gap as you know yourself between welterweight and middleweight. That's a that's a that's that's a big gap to bridge, um, particularly when you know Marvin Hagler is the is the guy who's who's the fighter. If, if it was a welterweight moving up, who's a guy who bombs a little bit, uh, you know you might give him a chance against a boxing middleweight. But but Hagler was the man who destroyed men. He absolutely destroyed men. Um, and, uh, but it was a psych job all the way through, Matt, because I agree with you. And what happened in terms of that, Ray actually planted little things all the way through the, the media build-up to the fight. And he, he made a point of making sure that he never upset Marvin in the media build-up. And he only complimented Marvin. And he actually sowed the seeds of, Marvin Hagler, you guys, you media guys, you don't give Marvin Hagler enough credit as a boxer he's a much better boxer than you give him credit for. And it was almost like he was saying to Marvin Hagler, come on, you, you, you can actually try to outbox me. I mean, we, know, we, we almost know that if you make a fight of this, well, everyone knows you're going to beat me. You know, he, he, he didn't put it like that, but it was, that was almost the subtext, if you like. But he, was, but he wanted to get Marvin Hagler to try to box him. And, he, and that's what Marvin started out to do. Whereas Marvin Hagler, if he was to reflect on it, uh, why on earth did Marvin Hagler, not to come out in round one against Ray Leonard as he did against Tommy Hearns. That's what he should have done, and that's what he had actually said he would do in the build-up. But he didn't do it on the night, and uh, and I think that's that, that, that's why it was interesting for me to to revisit in that way.
2: Well, there was all sorts. There was all sorts that went into the negotiations, as you alluded to there. But we'll just rewind before we get back to the to the night itself and the real kind of crescendo surrounding it and have a little bit of a look at these two these two men because what always makes for a great story in boxing more than any other sport is when you've got two people who are in some ways polar opposites or polarizing who walk on different sides of the street from different kinds of of backgrounds because it just means that there are so many more people who can either relate to them or aspire to be like them and these two were very different because, as you said, there Hagler was a blue-collar kind of a fighter, uh, and what the formula that works in boxing is, if you like, if you've got the spit and sawdust guy and the silver spoon guy, and that's what we had here because Ray Leonard, of course, he earned his gold medal, he earned that gold medal, but with it and that, you know, a thousand kilowatt smile came endorsements, came fame. Winning the Olympics is a big deal at any time, but particularly then when terrestrial TV ruled and there were only a few channels and there was no internet and it was all newspapers. Fame then was 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 mega fame of the kind that people born in recent decades, more recent decades, probably could never really understand, to be honest. And that's, that's where Leonard was. And he was extremely wealthy. He had enormous backing when he turned pro. Hagler had none of that. Absolutely none of that whatsoever. He had to really toil. He had to really, really work. And I've got some stats here that that Brian gave me the other day just to kind of highlight that because he didn't have that amateur background. Nobody knew who he was when he turned pro. His first fight, Hagler, he made $40. Leonard, for his first fight, made 50 grand. They They were on the same bill. 50 grand in
1: 1976 or 77.
2: That's massive money. That is absolutely massive money. So that gives you an idea. That gives you an idea of how marketable and just how huge he was. I know that pretty much all of you listening to this, you, you know he's Sugar Ray Leonard. You know that he was massive. But, but the figures really do do it some justice. And then just a little bit further down the line, uh, Hartford, Connecticut, 1977. They boxed on the same bill. Uh, it was Leonard's third professional fight. It was Hagler's 36th. Hagler got $1,500 for that fight. Ray Leonard got 50 grand for his debut. So for his third fight, he's getting at least 50 grand again. They're on the same bill. And there's still that discrepancy. And you're 35 fights in if you are haggler. And then the last one, they shared a bill as well when they both boxed for world titles. And Brian mentioned it the draw against Antwerp Fermo. On that same bill, Sugar Ray Leonard was boxing Wilfred Benitez for the WBC welterweight title. Hagler got 40 grand for taking on Antifermo. Sugar Ray Leonard got a million, a million bucks for boxing Wilfred Benitez. So this is the kind of stuff that Hagler would definitely have been aware of and fueled that kind of bitterness and resentment and sense of injustice that he used, that he used to kind of, kind of feed the monster. And he did that very successfully. So Brian, you, you looked into this in, in, in a lot of detail. If you can... Um, quite a tough job this actually, concisely just take us through the key points for for each of these two. People probably know less about Hagler's early days to be honest than they do about about Leonard's.
0: Yeah. um, And to be honest, that was one of the most interesting aspects I felt in terms of uh, Marvin's background. Um, He's from the ghetto and he would describe it as such himself. He's from Central Ward in Newark, New Jersey, and that was the scene, Andy, of notorious riots, stroke rebellion. Depending on which side of the fence you were, you were on, in 1967, uh, Marvin had just uh, crossed into his teens. He was a young boy who was a bit of a loner. Um, his mum. Ida Mae, very strong character, who lived, I, I believe, into her nineties. But uh, she 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 was alive until very recently, and very close to Marvin all the way through. Um, and she was the matriarch of the family and held a very tight family together in, in very difficult circumstances. Um, but those riots: twenty six people were killed, uh, more than a thousand were injured. Uh, Marvin Hagler. And his family were in an apartment where they had to remain on the floor for three solid days because if they stood up, they stood the risk of being shot by either National Guardsmen or police. And it was indiscriminate and it was very real. In fact, at one point during the the five-day siege of Central Ward, uh, bullets penetrated Hagler's home, um, his second-floor apartment. This is, this, this is the backdrop, essentially. Um, he, he grew up, um, his idol was Floyd Patterson, um, and Emil Griffith was another guy who he, who he revered. Um, the family moved to Brockton, Massachusetts, the home of Rocky Marciano, um, and in fact, the Petronellis were childhood friends of Rocky Marciano, and in fact, when they opened their gym, they were going, going to go into business with Rocky. Um, and Rocky, unfortunately, was killed in a, in a plane crash, uh, and they decided to open the gym anyway. And very shortly thereafter, Marvin entered the gym and changed the lives of both himself and the Petronellis forever. Um, but it was in Brockton, obviously, that uh, his, his fighting career got underway. And you've summed it up, Andy, in terms of the $40. I mean, it's, it, it's actually incredible. If you look at Marvin Hagler's record, uh, in terms of the fights and 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 you'll understand you know what this means, Matt in particular um, his fights were taking place in uh, in Brockton high school in the in the gym in the school gymnasium, and he had about maybe fifteen fights that were taking place there um, and um, and he was fighting guys kind of twice. Um, he'd beat a guy, and and he'd and he'd have to fight him again because he couldn't get the fights. He was he was just completely overlooked. And in fact, Andy uh, Leonard did go on to win the gold medal as an amateur. Um, Marvin actually, as an amateur, was a, a standout amateur and had, had had actually won the best uh, amateur uh, the best boxer award at, a, at an amateur tournament in Lowell, Massachusetts where Ray Leonard was on the, was, uh, fought in the tournament, Uh, the Spinks Brothers fought in the tournament, Uh, Howard Davis fought in the tournament, and these were guys who went on and all won Olympic gold medals, and Marvin Hagler got the best boxer award, but he turned pro because he needed the money, and that was the difference, and Ray Leonard was able to, while Ray Leonard didn't have, he, he wasn't from, you know, very affluent circumstances, but he had a he had more of an infrastructure around him. He had more support. Not a lot. I mean, you know, the silver spoon uh, analogy is a good one. It's not altogether true because Ray didn't have any money really uh, at that time. Was relying on handouts from from different people. It was a different time. You know, Olympians didn't get the endorsements that uh, that they do now. Um, but the circumstances were much different. He wasn't boxing in Brockton High School when he turned pro, uh, and as you say. Um, no, I think Brian, I think it's kind
1: of fair to say, though, that Ray Leonard was a superstar even before he turned pro. The Olympic gold medalist, it was terrestrial TV, and I think he did a deal, didn't he, with a, with an, a lawyer or a money guy where basically he, he was already kind of promoting himself, wasn't he, or had a team that did a, network, did a deal with the network. So he straight away from the get-go, he was a superstar,
0: wasn't he? Absolutely, Matt. And in fact, what you've just alluded to there in terms of that man, Mike Traynor, Mike Traynor revolutionised boxing. Uh, or the way that boxing would be around a superstar performer, as you've described Leonard as he was at that moment when he stepped into the into the professional ranks. He he actually wasn't going to turn pro. That wasn't his plan. His plan was actually to go to university, uh, study communications, and maybe go into marketing or a job like that. But both his parents fell ill. Um, they had no money. He decided the only way to to make money in order to help his his Mother and father would be to actually go into boxing, and Janks Morton was part of the of the team that had been around him at that point. Dave Jacobs uh, had uh, trained him uh, mostly uh, all the way through for that Olympic gold medal charge, and uh, Janks Morton found this lawyer called Mike Trainer in Silver Spring nearby, and they they played softball together, and uh, and Mike Trainer actually what he did was he made he created Sugar Ray Leonard Inc. And so Sugar Ray Leonard was the, was the central cog in the wheel, not a promoter, not the manager. Um, the boxer was the central cog. It was almost, uh, a forerunner to what Floyd Mayweather was able to go and do in the end. You know, uh, uh, long before there was money Mayweather, there was money Leonard. Um, and, uh, but you're right. He was, he was a superstar in the making. Um, he corrected. I remember it was Hugh McElvaney, my colleague on the Sunday Times, who, who put to him because it was all widely reported you got forty forty thousand dollars in, in your first fight, and Marvin got forty, and Leonard interjected and said, "No, I got fifty thousand <laughs> because Hugh wasn't uh, wasn't factoring in the TV money, which uh, which actually was a part of his his purse." And so he so what Mike Traynor was able to do, he negotiated with the venues and he negotiated with TV. And as you say, it was a totally different time in terms of TV. So the networks then were ABC. um, You also had uh, HBO coming into the reckoning. And what he did, he navigated that whole uh, business just so adroitly that he got them all competing against one another. So in other words, they were paying top whack to get Ray Leonard on, on TV. And meanwhile, Marvin Hagler was completely overlooked. And, uh, and that was the kind of backdrop all the way through to the point, as you say, Andy, when they both boxed for the world title for the first time on the same bill at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, when Heigler challenged Antonio Fermo and Ray Leonard challenged Wilfred Benitez. And Bob Arum will tell you to this day how the poster for the fight was 7 ths uh, Leonard Benitez, even though it was the welterweight title. And just right down at the very bottom of the poster, you've got, uh, by the way, Marvin Hagler challenging Vito Angiofermo for the world middleweight title. Um, And Leonard got a million pounds for for challenging, a million dollars for challenging Benitez. Uh, Hagler was paid 40 grand. And it didn't go unnoticed uh, by Hagler. I mean, he questioned Petronelli's as to why I'm getting 40 grand and he's getting a million. And, you know, the Petronelli's, as you say, the, the Olympic background, uh, they, they said that Mike Trainer he's a hard, he's a tough guy to deal with. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that's, that, that was very real in Marvin Hagler's mind. And it, and it was very important, very significant, because when it came down to the fight, the super fight, in terms of the negotiations for that, uh, Leonard and Trainer were able to turn that around in terms of, they offered Hagler the inducement of money and got all the other Elements in their favor for the fight. So, so money all the way through, guys, was uh, was really significant for this. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids! Hey, everybody! Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are
1: you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast. Coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set,
2: go! This is so crazy! We'll we'll get to that. We'll get to the shenanigans with the contract because that that is really interesting. And and as you say... uh, a very smart game was played by Leonard and by Trainer with regard to with regard to Hagler's career and his kind of development It's an interesting one, and it's something that Macklin would want hundred percent approve of the way they went about things with him the Petronellis because as you say, he couldn't get the fights, and they knew that he needed more seasoning because it was no good just knocking people over in in the Brockton high School gym. It was no good. And it wasn't making him any money anyway. So what they did was they took him off to Philadelphia and chucked him in with a load of rock-hard Philly fighters. Uh, Bobby Boogaloo Watts, Willie the Worm Monroe, Eugene the Cyclone Hart, Benny Briscoe. These were these were good level operators of very, very hard men. And he picked up a couple of defeats, one against Watts and one against Monroe. And he never lost again after that until, until the super fight. But Matt, that's what When you look at some careers now, you look at what they did there, they didn't care that he was going to probably lose a couple of fights. They didn't care because they knew that in the end, if they had what they thought they had, which of course it turned out they did, then he would be all the better for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they didn't bring him down to Philadelphia to get beaten. They brought him down to learn his trade and to to grow as a fighter. Anyone, any... You know, years ago, I think it was Don Chagan who said it, or maybe it was someone else, but it was someone of that kind of caliber. He said, you know, in the old days, if you show, if you brought them an, a matchmaker, an undefeated fighter, they'd say, I'll show you a fighter that can't fight because he hasn't fought anybody if he's undefeated. You know, in Philadelphia, I mean, even now, to be honest, but definitely way back then, you had the Blue Horizon. You had guys like Russell Paltz, who's one of the best matchmakers there's ever been in boxing. And he would make literally 50-50 fights that were unbelievable. Because, you know, these were Philly fight fans that knew what they were watching. They weren't going there because they were following a particular fighter. They just knew that the Tuesday night fights or Friday night fights at the Blue Horizon was going to be barn burner after barn burner. And guys like Marvin Hagler, would, who was taken down there from the Petronellis, they knew he's going to be in some really tough fights here. But, you know, like, as you said, if he is what we think he is, he's going to come through it. And he's going to be a much better fighter because of it. And of course, there were a couple of times it didn't go his way. You mentioned Willie the Worm, Monroe's, the father of Willie Monroe fought Golovkin. Um, I think you know, was it Cyclone Hart? You he mentioned, or there was somebody else. What, uh, it'd be I can't remember who it was, but he was. Um, I mean, that that would have given him a schooling. That is the school of hard knucks down there in the 1970s, Philadelphia. I'm on about if you were, if you were the best fighter in Philadelphia. You were probably good enough to win a world title. Do you know what I mean? It was just, that's the kind of place it was. You mean, you, you hear of the legendary wars, gym wars that happened. I mean, I trained in Philadelphia for a couple of fights, and it wasn't the 70s, it was the, the 2000s. But it's still that rough, mean, hard, tough place, and so many great fighters that maybe don't even box outside of Philadelphia. Maybe they don't have the, um, the funding. It's not a very you know, affluent, rich places. It's quite grim and tough and hard. It's just got that kind of feel of the city. But, you know, even (laughs) in recent times, the likes of Rosado, there's people, you know, Tevin Farmer, they'll win some, lose some kind of guys, but they're good fighters. The city of brotherly love, there's not much love lost in some of those gyms, is there, Matt? (laughs) No, definitely not. I can vouch for that.
2: (laughs) Another thing about Hagler as well, um, because he's watching all of this... Unfold on the other side of the street, if you like, in terms of where where Sugar Ray Leonard is. And, and and I said before, and I'll stress it again: he won that Olympic gold medal, and they don't give them out on street corners. He earned that position. But if you're Hagler, you're looking at the way he's had it, and you're looking at the way you've got it. And as and as Brian said, he turned pro early because he needed to make money. That that amateur route wasn't an option for him, and he's probably looking at Leonard from years back, thinking that could have been me. I could have gone to the Olympics, and what he did hagler i i think with with great success which most people don't manage is he used that that resentment and that sense of injustice and that bitterness to feed the monster as he described it now we we talk about this quite a bit matt and and one of the things you've always said to me about a boxing career is that you cannot allow yourself to be consumed by bitterness uh, and resentment, because it will just it will drain you of all your energy, all your mental energy. It will tie you up in knots, and mentally, it will do you it will do you no good. It will burn your house down, basically. But Hagler somehow he harnessed it, and as I say, he used it as, as fuel to make the flames even more fierce. It didn't burn his house down. I've just always kind of wondered how he how he did it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the resentment and the anger, and I suppose that with Leonard it would have been born out of envy as well. You know, I've had it so hard and you've had it so easy. But like you say, that's not an exact truth because Leonard did win the Olympic gold. But, you know, nonetheless, if you're Marvin Hagler from his point of view, he's looking at how hard he's had it. Like you say, he's had to get down there to Philadelphia and literally fight one 50-50 fight, fight after another. You know, and, and for pennies, relatively absolute pennies in comparison to what Sugar Ray earned. But you know that that sort of um, you know feeling hard done by it can build a defiance within you and it can build an inner strength almost that you can draw strength from even and uh, you know it, almost like a bit of a chip on your shoulder and I think maybe Marvin Hagler had a bit of that about him and like you, you know he talked about seek and destroy or, or was it not seek and destroy, destroy, destroy. Destruct and destroy, destroy. Destruct, destruct and destroy. destroy destroy yourself in the gym, destruct yourself in the gym and then go and destroy your opponent. You know, he, he, he was uh, the solitude. He used to lock himself away. So he'd, he'd be that, you know, getting up at five o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning running a pitch black dog. There's no scientific, there's nothing physiologically beneficial to doing that. You don't get fitter running at five in the morning as opposed to eight o'clock in the morning. But mentally, you know, when you're out in that pitch black cold and it's freezing, you're getting out of your bed. It, it's that mental sort of, that. that's what they're training there when you do that. And Marvin Hagler was very much uh, of that school, of that old school, you know, that, that, like you say, this, uh, destruct and destroy, or destroy and destruct, whatever it was. But he was uh, very much so. He he would have had that, that big defiance about him. I, I mean, funnily enough, I was just kind of, I don't know, I'll leave it at that because I'm going to drift on a tangent because I'm very good at that. But I was going to talk about the Mugabe fight. Was that the fight before, Marvin, before the Leonard fight? I mean, listen, yeah. what a fight. You know, the Mugabe fight, the beast Mugabe. And then, you know, he, you're right, he definitely made the mistake, clagler By by trying to box in those first four rounds, definitely cost him that fight.
0: Yeah, just just in terms of – sorry, Andy, sorry. Uh, just, just what you've said there, Matt, in terms of uh... – uh, the seclusion and the isolation and the, the old school. I mean, he Marvin Hagler was part of that old school fraternity where they went to these very base training camps and and really just self sacrificed um, and and built up this this rage this fury inside them. But Provincetown was just a particular a particular isolated uh, example um, and and. If you see some of the footage and some of the the pictures now, the old black and white of of Hagler running on the beach uh, in winter, the Atlantic Ocean raging in, uh, the wildness of it, the barrenness. It's it's just a barren, bleak landscape. Uh, Icy snow uh, coming in. It didn't matter. He was still always up at five o'clock in the morning um, uh, on the beach running. He'd do an eight-mile run. And if he, if he got it in his head, he would turn it into a 12 or 14 or 16-mile run just for the heck of it, you know, because, he, because that's the way he pushed himself. Um, but, uh, but in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, you know, that kind of old-school approach to it, Hagler was, you know, maybe one of the last that, that did it to that degree. Um, and then, always- but, then, but, but then when you've alluded there to, to Mugabe, which we'll come on to, interestingly... Uh, when, when he when he fought Hearns, he actually had gone to Palm Springs for part of that camp. And then his next camp was totally in Palm Springs. And so was his build up to Leonard. And it was almost like the the way the, 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 that he built himself in Provincetown, you know, was no longer the way he constructed himself anymore. And, and Leonard found that out through, we'll come on to this, I'm sure, Andy, in terms of there was a... Uh, a dinner which was probably a pivotal moment in it all in terms of the psychological drama that would that would play
2: Hey everybody this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast join us every week while we rate review ride philosophize and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make model and style that could possibly exist plus news and racing that's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios Okay, so we'll just trace the two careers jumping forward from that night where they featured on the same bill, 1979, when Hagler won the title against Anto Fermo. Sugar Ray Leonard won the title against Wilfred Benitez. So Leonard at that point, a welterweight, obviously Hagler was then, always will be, probably still is now, around £160 mark. So he went on to win the title against Alan Minter, uh, as you mentioned, towards the Start on what wasn't a particularly glorious night for for British boxing uh, in the capital. That was in that was in September 1980, and then he kept busy. He just kept fighting. That was that was how he did it. He rematched onto Fermo. He boxed the likes of Mustafa Hamsho, uh Tony Sibson, Wilfred Scipion, Roberto Duran. He just kept them coming. Box Hamshow again. Thomas Hearns, of course, with that epic three round and not even three rounds as it turned out in the end of of just savagery. Then came Mugabe, and then we have the fight against Leonard. So he was very, very active all the way through that period. For Leonard, it it was a different story, really, because he got that title, of course. Then he had a fairly chastening experience against Roberto Duran, but... And this was good evidence at that stage as well, actually, of the kind of cleverness of, of him and his team because they got Duran to agree to get back in the ring really quickly after that first fight, knowing that he would just disappear off to Panama uh, and party like, you know, there was no tomorrow. Uh, and then that would... The, the sooner they could get him back in the ring, knowing what he was going to do to celebrate, they thought the better. And they turned out to be absolutely right. Uh, and they got the win in the rematch... Uh, then he had his own epic with Hearns, Hearns, of course, which which he won late in the fight. Famous speech in the corner uh, from Angelo Dundee. And then really it seemed to kind of look like it was drawing to an end. He boxed Bruce Finch in February 1982. Then he was out of the ring until May 1984. His first kind of retirement. When he came back and boxed Kevin Howard, as as you said, Brian, it didn't it didn't go it didn't go well. Um, he got the win. Um, and then it looked like he'd hung them up again. Just before, though, we get to the kind of machinations of how he managed to tempt Hagler into the rig, we, we, we've talked about the fact that, that Hagler had it tough and that, and that things, to an extent, um, came easier to Leonard. But behind the scenes for Sugar Ray Leonard, all was not well. Because, as he describes it in his book, and, it, and it's a very, very searingly honest book, actually. G- give it a read if people haven't, haven't already. There were two characters. There was Ray... Who, who, who was a good guy, and then there was Sugar Ray, who, who was a complete nightmare. Uh, and this, this well-manicured image of, uh, as I said, the smile and the, and the all-American hero behind the scenes, th- things were falling apart.
0: Yeah, re- very much so. And uh, I mean, you can trace it all the way back to his youth, in fact, um, in terms of the underlying reasons, which, as you say, uh, uh searingly honest um, autobiography that he came out with uh, almost a decade ago now. Um, but it revealed things that we didn't know about Ray uh, prior to that. Uh, we did know he did have a cocaine problem, but I don't think we knew the scale of it. Um, we did know that he liked to drink, but we didn't know that he was an alcoholic. Um, it's I mean, it's staggering to think that Ray Leonard, through most of his career, was an alcoholic. Um, I mean, you, you actually couldn't, you wouldn't believe it. Um, but, um, and then the underlying reason, perhaps in all of this in terms of, and who knows in terms of how much he, he may have been fueled by this in the end, um, in terms of the sexual abuse that he suffered, uh, by two people. One was a, a trusted Olympic coach whom he, he never named, although he said that, uh, he had passed away by the time that, uh, that he revealed this, uh, and also a guy who, uh, was almost a benefactor uh, when he was training for the Olympics uh, in 1976 in, in Montreal, um, and who knows in terms of the abuse that he then uh, succumbed to in terms of his alcoholism and the cocaine abuse, perhaps that was fueled by some of this uh, experience. Uh, but the point is, as you've said, Andy, in terms of uh, he actually succumbed to this in in 1980. Two, when he retired because of a detached retina. So it wasn't just that he retired, he actually suffered a a career-threatening injury um, to the point where when he did come back against Kevin Howard and then ultimately against Marvin Hagler, people actually felt that he was putting his eyesight on the line. You know, that, that, that Kevin Howard and most certainly Marvin Hagler could actually blind him. Like, are you mad in terms of what you're doing? Uh, but he actually says that had he not come back, he actually wouldn't be around today because through getting back in the ring, through putting himself on the line in the boxing ring again, he weaned himself off uh, cocaine and drink long enough to actually, um, uh, in the end, when he fought Hagler, he, he took himself off the cocaine and never went back on it. He couldn't do that with the alcohol until he entered the AA um, meetings and uh, and is part of that community now. Um, but but who would have thought, you know, until he actually revealed these things, that that his life was actually degenerating like that. And, and, and at his core, uh, and this was something that Hugh McAlvaney actually said to me a couple of times, in terms of the way Ray Leonard fought Hugh always felt, without knowing this, that deep inside Ray Leonard, the way he described it was that in his fighting heart, in his heart and soul, there was this big block of of ice, this chip of ice almost inside him, where there was incredible darkness. And Hugh had read that without actually knowing this uh, about him, Um, uh, which was really interesting. and. through acknowledging this about himself, admitting this about himself, and the extent to which he was candid in acknowledging this, um, I think that's what makes it interesting. Then, in terms of looking back now, what he was going through uh, in the build-up to to some of these fights, uh, in terms of Kevin Howard, in terms of Hagler, when it happened, um, and and it is a it is a big factor and it's a big part of. Uh, it's a big part of the story, uh, and in fact, um, in terms of his domestic life, uh, that was affected badly too. Um, uh, Juanita, um, who, who was his childhood sweetheart, and he had had a, a kid when he was 16 years old, little Ray. Uh, he carried a photograph of Ray and Juanita in his in his socks uh, when he went on to Olympic uh, glory. Uh, and so that was part of the, the almost Cinderella story, if you like. But actually, that was myth as well. Uh, they had a, a quite uh, frenetic uh, relationship, shall we say? And uh, and in fact, that um, that was affected badly by uh, by some of the abuses uh, to which he had succumbed, and uh, um, and the drink and drugs uh, became a, a part of his life, which. Um, which really threatened uh, not only how, how uh, effective he might be as a fighter when he would come back to fight these guys, but, but actually it threatened his, uh, his, uh, his, his own life. Uh, and as I said, he, uh, he actually would, would say now that uh, had he not come back, he, he, don't, he doesn't think he would be around now because that's how much he was in the grip of those abuses at that time.
1: montel jordan new guests every week compelling interviews that you want to hear check us out
2: wherever you get podcasts one star recruits so time now to get to a kind of second act and uh, and that's probably the right way to describe it, to be honest, because it all gets pretty Shakespearean at this point, because the last fight I mentioned there was this fight against Kevin Howard, May nineteen eighty four. He's still a welterweight at that point. Marvin Hagler is flattening everybody at middleweight. He's he's cementing his legacy as one of the finest middleweights in history. Many people would would still make a very strong argument for that for that being the case. So how come nearly three years later, and let's remember this detached retina. How come he resurfaces at middleweight to take on someone who hasn't lost for God knows how long? Who is seen to be, before the arrival of Iron Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet with the shaved head and the and the permanent scowl. People were worried about his eyesight. People were worried about more than that ahead of this fight for 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 Ray Leonard. This does get quite Machiavellian, doesn't it? It's like a kind of alternative Othello plot line. He, he goes pretty yago on us, really. Sugar Ray landed. Uh, just just just
0: take us through it. it it's uh, it's incredible, Andy. Um, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know if psychologically, Matt, when you were boxing, that you've ever stripped down an opponent to really the, the nth degree, you know, to the point where Ray would say that. Um, he didn't just look at a fighter physically. You know, everyone looks at the tapes and goes through uh, what a boxer, you know, what you're going to be facing uh, physically. Uh, but 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 Ray studied Marvin psychologically, um, and even as you say, Andy, in terms of the Machiavellian drama of it all, um, he lured Marvin into a trap. I mean, that's that's what it was. Uh, Marvin Hagler. Um, after he had that three-round war with Tommy Hearns, um, at that point, he was at the absolute pinnacle of boxing. He was the monster. Um, he was the man. There's no question of that. Someone said, I mean, what he had done to Hearns was, was, was just so so shattering um, uh, that, uh, that someone at ringside said, well, who's, who's Agler going to fight next? And someone alongside him said, Well, how about Russia? Uh that's that's how uh, you know that's how malevolent he had been. That's how much he had destroyed Tommy Hearns. There was no one, there was no one that could fist this man. Oh,
1: uh, no, let's remember as well, Brian, Tommy Hearns really, you know, last the first fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, there were a lot of people said that. I mean, I've heard stories since from Manny Stewart that Tommy Hearns. Uh, messed up on the weight and had to skip three or four pounds off. C- came in three or four pounds under. 10-7, came in 10-4. And that, you know, basically, his legs went because of making weight. And Leonard caught up with him later on. Of course, that's Manny Stewart's take on it. You could say, no, Leonard just got to him. But nonetheless, he was behind on the cards. And certainly, when they had the rematch years later, when it was given a draw, most people thought Tommy herds was unlucky there. So, you know, and I know Styles make fights, but you know, Marvin Hagler just went through her in in, a, in an absolute ding dong battle, but he had him out of there inside three rounds. And this is a guy that over twenty-four rounds, some people could say, you know, maybe he was Leonard's
0: Bogeyman. No question he was. Uh, and, and it's only because um it's only because real Leonard, you know, we, can, we 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 we've contrasted the two styles of Hagler and Leonard. What we haven't maybe mentioned and emphasized enough is Ray Leonard was a, a terrific boxer. Uh, you know, he was almost a very fancy. He was the flashy guy. Ray Leonard was also a mean killer in that ring. There's no question of that. When he went in to fight guys like uh, Benitez, uh, he went in to finish guys. What he did to Dave Boy Green, listen, that's as that's as, that's as startling a finish as you will ever see in a boxing ring. Uh, that lesson, yeah, oh, absolutely vicious. And that's what he was. That's what he was. he was. He was a mean killer in that ring. There's no question of that. So we've acknowledged that about Hagler. We should really acknowledge that about Leonard too, even though he was a, technically he was just brilliant in terms of his, uh, his, his boxing skills. But Hearns, it had taken him uh, until the 14th round to catch up with him. And Andy, you mentioned earlier in terms of the inspiring speech of Angelo Dundee at the end of the 12th round when he sat him down on the stool and looked at him and said, you're blowing it now, son. You're blowing it. And, and in fact, Dundee and his motivational skills would be, would be very pivotal in, in the fight against Hagler as well. Uh, but but Hearns, Hearns is underrated and underappreciated, I think, is the, is the truth. Um, you, you said there, Andy, but uh, you know, are you a Hagler man or are you a Leonard fan? Honestly, in revisiting this whole era... I think I'm more a Duran man than anything, you know, and, 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 and I think when all said and done, I'm sure you'd agree, Matt, Duran is almost the ultimate fighter's fighter. He re, yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and, the, and do you know what the crazy thing is? Roberto Duran was a legend before he ever stepped into the 1980s at all. People forget he's the greatest lightweight who ever lived. And, uh, and, and he then became a, a key part of this whole era as well, you know. Um, but but so, so in terms of the support, supporting cast... It's astonishing that you had a guy like Hearns who who would have dominated another in, in another era. And he's just almost, he's the, I don't know, he's the Joe Pesky to Robert De Niro. Um, <laughs> although, listen, to be Joe Pesky isn't too bad. Uh, but uh, but Tommy Hearns is almost overlooked in a way. And he was a brilliant, I mean, brilliant boxer as well as a brilliant fighter. And that that first round, I don't think there has been, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, Uh Another first round in a championship fight that encapsulated that amount of fury where they went at it just from the opening bell. Yeah, I mean,
1: Hagler just literally, the bell went and he just jumped across the ring and initiated war straight away and it never let up right till the end.
0: Yeah, Uh, until Hagler finished it. (laughs) (laughs) And he made sure that he did. Uh, But uh, um, I I think in terms of that that fight, um, one of the images that never leaves my mind in terms of that was when he got Hearns in trouble. He got he hit him with an overhand right. And if you remember, Hearns staggered back. He was like a drunk uh, almost at that moment and his legs were were going, but he managed to stay up on his feet. But Hagler ran across the ring at him. And I just think that's just, you know, that's just encapsulated what Marvin Hagler was and then landed two devastating right hands. But he, he ran across the ring to deliver those right hands. There was nothing... Ever compromising. Uh, right. It was like a Martin street Hagler.
1: fight. It was like a street
0: fight. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, and and so 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 you've got Ray Leonard who is uh, he's a commentator at this point. He's doing your job, Matt. The, you know, this is Matt Macklin now uh, uh, at ringside for, for Hagler Herons. This is what Ray Leonard has become. And listen, no one is anticipating that he'll ever be anything other than this anymore because he was that ordinary against Kevin Howard. Um, totally unimpressive uh, and he knew it himself, it wasn't there anymore, he has retired for good he said, that was it so uh, I think one of the quotes in the book uh, um, Leonard, after the Hagler-Herns fight, he was asked and he said uh, if ever I needed a reason to stay retired, that's it <laughs> um, but uh, but then what happened was, and it's really interesting, after, after Tommy Hearns Marvin Hagler more or less decided that was it. You know, he had had climbed Everest. He had, this was his peak, and he knew it. Um, And he had reached a point where he didn't want to go to the wars anymore. And you'll know that yourself in terms of there comes a moment where it just is something that you consider, I'm not going to put myself there anymore. And Hagler had almost got to that point after Hearns, but they convinced him to fight Mugabe, um, and they put him in the ring against Mugabe, and that was another war. Um, and uh, you know, the sixth round of of Hagler Mugabe, you could actually put on, you could tag on to the Hagler Hearns fight, and it wouldn't be out of place. <laughs> it was a, it was an, an astonishing round, and the whole fight, as you say, was it was a bit was a battle. Um, and he overcame. I, wonder,
1: I wonder Brian was the combination of those two fights back-to-back back and, and what it does take from you as a fighter. It, was that a big contributing factor to the fact that he came out and boxed early on against Leonard because he didn't want to go to that dark place
0: again? Matt, I agree with you completely. I agree with you completely. What happened was this. Uh, they convinced him to, to box Mugabe uh, co- uh, combined effort on the part of Bob Arum, the promoter, and the Petronelli brothers, who were looking after him, obviously. Um, and it was scheduled for the October, after he had, he had beaten Hearns in April. And Hagler just didn't want to box, didn't want to fight. Um, it was too much for him. And he wanted to pull out with a bad back, and Aram didn't consider that a legitimate enough reason, so therefore he got his nose broken <laughs> uh, in a sparring session. And uh, and there was no fight and he pulled out. So this is where it gets Machiavellian, Andy, to, to get back to your point. And, I, you know, you talk about going off on tangents, Matt. I'm more guilty than you are. Uh, but, uh, but but this is where it gets, for me, fascinating. Um, so what happens is Marvin Hagler, the, the Mugabe fight is postponed. It's rescheduled for the following March. He's kind of a bit reluctant, but he's, he's said he'll, he'll, he'll go through this fight. In January 1986, eight weeks before he does get into the ring and box Mugabe, Ray Leonard has a restaurant in Bethesda, Maryland, which he had a part interest in with Mike Traynor. And there was a grand opening. And he invited Marvin Hagler down. And they had this dinner at Jameson's. And it's a pivotal moment. Because Ray Leonard starts to get under Marvin's skin, uh, and this is where the psychological play comes in hard. And that bit where you're talking about uh, getting up at five a.m., Hagler acknowledged to Ray at that at that dinner that uh, uh, his his quote is: "I hope I will get this verbatim uh, off the top of my head." uh, His quote went, "Um, "You know, Ray." It's very hard to get up out of your bed at six a.m. when you're wearing silk pajamas. Um, and Ray, of course, heard this and knew what he was saying entirely, and but, but smiled and said, "No shit." <laughs> um, and uh, and I think the the hunger, do, do you think Ray thought mm, he's not as hungry as he used to be? No question, Matt. That's precisely what he. That's precisely what he gleaned from this dinner. Not only that he wasn't hungry, Matt. I think Ray, I think Marvin, Ray, Ray told me the story actually here in Birmingham, uh, in fact. Um, he, uh, he, he got told by, by Marvin that he didn't want to get up in the morning to run anymore. He said he gets injured more easily. He gets cut more easily. I think that he went to the nth degree and said to Ray that he didn't want to box anymore, is the truth. Um, and of course, Ray li- listens to all of this. And of course, this is manna from heaven for a guy who, still in his own mind, still wanted that challenge. You know, still saw Hagler as the man, and and you know he was doing a little bit of training uh, while he was doing the commentating. And he always had it in the back of his mind that ha- Hagler was the monster that he could actually beat. Because if I just go back a little bit to the Roberto Duran fight, where Hagler struggled to overcome Duran, it went all fifteen rounds, and very interestingly. Roberto Duran, a smaller guy who had come up from lightweight, never mind welterweight, actually was able to box with Marvin. And to the point where after 13 rounds, he was ahead on the scorecards. Now, that was probably wrong in terms of uh, judges, uh, the way they had it. Um, But Marvin Hagler had to win the final two rounds of that fight, a 15-rounder to win the fight. Um, And before the decision was announced, Barry Tompkins was sat alongside Ray Leonard. Uh, they were both commentating for HBO. And Duran put his head through the ropes. And it was Barry that told me this story. Uh, Duran said to Leonard, this is before the decision has been announced, that if you box this guy, if you box this guy, you will beat him. Uh, he told Ray. Um, and he was that sure of it, you know, that uh, after just going the 15 rounds with with, with Hagler, he felt that um, he felt that Hagler was... Uh, was susceptible to a boxer like like Leonard um, and what and the range of skills he he could bring to the ring. Um, so uh, and I think that uh, that probably prompted Leonard's initial comeback against Kevin Howard because he wanted to fight Hagler after that, but yeah, it wasn't there he, anymore. You think he was thinking Hagler from a long time ago, uh, Ma- uh, Matt? He was thinking Marvin Hagler from 1981. mate. you know, uh, he 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 saw. Yeah, he saw Marvin Hagler as that ultimate for him from that time, and uh, and I didn't realize it until I went back and researched a little bit and spoke to some people as well that it was uh, you know I thought it was something that maybe that maybe it was kind of being spoken about. No, it was much deeper than that. Uh, they both wanted it badly, and and what you know, uh, listen, I, I'm going off on terrible tangents here, and you're you're probably going to run me out of time altogether, Andy. And say, okay. Uh, pull, you know, the and bell's, bells going to ring. The bell's going <laughs> to ring at any moment. Uh, but, 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 but something that I should mention in terms of the resentment and the grievance and the chip on the shoulder. In 1982, when Leonard did announce his retirement after the detached retina, uh, it was up in the air as to whether he would retire or not. Hagler didn't want him to retire. Ten days before um, he had this grand uh, gala evening, at which Muhammad Ali was there, Howard Cassell was the host. Um, it was in a big arena in Baltimore, 10,000 people. He invited Heidler and the Petronellis to be ringside at this. And they thought they were being summoned to Baltimore uh, for Leonard to issue his, his challenge and that you know the fight would finally happen. And of course, what happened was as Leonard is about to, you know, reveal his decision, he, he addresses Marvin Hagler at ringside. And he says, this great man, you know, a fight with this great man uh, would be the ultimate. Uh, you know, you talk about, talk about money, this is Fort Knox we're talking about. But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Thank you and good night. And that's how he retired. And of course, Marvin Hagler thought, you've brought me all the way to Baltimore to do this to me. I mean, he felt humiliated. And, and, and that was something that, uh, that was deep within Hagler in terms, of, uh, in terms of his feelings towards Ray Leonard after that. Um, but, then, but then, so at this dinner in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, in Jemisons, uh, Ray is gleaning all this from Marvin. And of course, Marvin is happy to speak to a retired fighter. You know, he's talking to Matt uh, Macklin, the commentator rather than Matt Macklin, the fighter at this point. That's what he believes. Uh, in his mind, I can I can say anything to to Ray Leonard because, well, I mean, he's, he, he's not a boxer anymore. But, of course, Ray was finding out deep thoughts within Marvin Hagler in terms of he didn't want to box anymore. And, of course, he's storing this away. And he's actually at the fight. Um, he goes to the fight with Michael J. Fox, uh, the Mugabe fight, and he's ringside. And as the fight's progressing, Ray is seeing things which totally correlate to what Marvin Hagler was telling him at this dinner yeah. at the Emerson's in terms of, yeah, you really don't want to fight anymore, do you? You know, this is hard for you now. You don't want to be putting your body on the line anymore like this. And I can see actually that you are getting older, you know, because you're actually struggling against this guy, Mugabe. And every time Mugabe boxes you, he's outboxing you. And this is what uh, this is what uh, Ray Leonard was able to see at ringside to the point where... Uh, when the fight was over, he turned to Michael J. Fox and he said, I can beat this guy. And of course uh, Michael J. Fox just looks at him leans down at the cooler and says, Ray, have another beer. <laughs> and and uh, because it was preposterous. Uh, that you was know, not strong enough. Was <laughs> that? That one's not strong enough. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think it was Coors Light. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but you know, in terms of in terms of where they were at this point, when Leonard di- then did issue his challenge, people thought he was crazy. I mean, what are you doing? Uh, but 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 people didn't realise what was what was really at play in terms of Marvin Hagler didn't want to fight at this point anymore. Uh, people didn't know that and, that, and that's that's where you know that's that, that that's what's interesting about boxing, Matt. What 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 you will know yourself in terms of. I always felt the week leading into a fight is where you get muddled in your head in terms of when a fight's announced, you know, I look at the two guys and I feel, you know, I can make a pretty good judgment as to what might happen. And then, the, and then fight week happens and you listen to all the bullshit and it just sends your head astray. And, uh, and so in other words, the truth of what it was, Marvin Hagler, was a guy who didn't really want to box anymore. And he felt trapped when Ray Leonard issue, issued his challenge in public. Uh, because if, if Marvin Hagler had said, uh, no, I'm walking away from the sport, he would have not, you know, his, uh, the final challenger, he would have turned his back on. And that, would, that was something that Marvin Hagler could never do because he was the ultimate fighting man. But he didn't want to fight anymore is the truth. And I think that that's, I, I, I didn't realise that it was to that extent, but I but I believe that that's, that's how fundamental it was. In, in, Brian, in,
1: what I mean. do you think it was more, you know, the, the fact that he came out and boxed those first four rounds, I mean, one chain of thought is that, you know, Ray was planting the seed, you're a good boxer, can you box with me? Do you think you can outbox me if he's trying to challenge him in that sense? Or do you think there was a part, or do you think it was more a case of, He'd just gone to war with Hagler. He'd just gone to war with Mugabe. And in the Mugabe fight, it was, you could see, this is hard work now. I'm an older man. This, going to this well, it's tough. Do you think he was trying to avoid going to a war again with Leonard and was trying to do it an easier way? Which one, which one of those?
0: I, 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 I think, Matt, there's, there's an element of that. I agree with you. In fact, Tommy Heron said in the build-up to the fight, um, so initially, he, he didn't give Ray Leonard much of a chance. He didn't give him any chance at all. But he thought about it, and he actually was very um, he was very insightful. Um, as you might imagine, a guy whos fought both guys, you know you would listen to a guy like that, um, and he said precisely what you've just said in terms of Marvin will never want to go to a war like that again." Now he felt that if, that if he did, he would get rid of Ray, you know fairly fairly handily, um, but he, he, his sense was that Marvin Hagler would never want to go there again that it just takes it takes too much out of you. And so I think there was a bit of that. But it's very interesting, the, the, the first round, uh, when Marvin Hagler should have made a very emphatic point to a comebacking Ray Leonard, who's been out of the ring essentially for five years, this is no place for you to be, and I'm going to show you that. Uh, and he didn't do it. But what happened was, uh, Ray Leonard, Angelo Dundee says that he was really nervous, a lot of nervous energy in the dressing room, and and it was there going into the opening round, and Ray uh, acknowledged to me he ran like a rabbit, uh, which of course was 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 Marvin's description as well. But Ray acknowledged that because you know he was a bit nervous. But what happened was he he faint he fainted, uh, Hagler about uh, halfway through the round. And what happened was Marvin Hagler reacted to that, um, in a, in an exaggerated way, and 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 put his hands up uh very suddenly himself and ray realized you know i'm nervous but shit Oh he's nervous too and it was a big moment for him you know and uh and but but had hagler not been as tentative in in his approach to the fight uh it it might have been a much different story but i think you're right Matt uh part of the reason for 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 him being as tentative as he was was do you really want to go to the well again after after what you've experienced uh, against a man like uh, Tommy Hearns and 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 then further against Mugabe?
2: Well, it's just so interesting hearing all the ingredients that go into it because such a clever game was 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 played by Leonard. It still took an enormous amount of courage to to come back after that amount of time out, but. He couldn't not take the fight, could he, Hagler? It's a fighter's pride. If he'd refused to take a fight against someone who'd been out for three years, who was half blind, as people were describing him, who was jumping up from well to weight, then his whole reign as middleweight champion would have been diminished uh, in many people's eyes. So he just, he had to do it. But there were some important victories scored in the in the build-up to that fight contractually as well, because you mentioned in the first round there that Leonard ran like a rabbit. And, and one of the reasons that he could, you know, had plenty of rabbit holes to go down was because they managed to get a big ring and they managed to get 12 rounds, not 15. Uh, and there were discussions around the gloves as well. And, and you just get the feeling that that team Hagler, they dropped the ball a bit when it came to stuff like that, because th- these were important things.
0: No question, Andy. And in fact, that's a really, uh, a really pertinent point. Uh, The Petronellis were great guys, lovely people. Uh, But perhaps, and I haven't made a big deal of this in the book because I think it would, uh, because they were such good guys, but you could make the point that perhaps they were a little bit in over their head at times in terms of the, you know, the big stage that this was. Um, And uh, for years, they had had struggled to steer Hagler into meaningful fights. uh, And, Struggled to uh, to secure for him the kind of money that other champions were getting, particularly Ray Leonard. Um, but this is where they perhaps dropped the ball most of all. But but I think Hagler was was maybe uh, you know as guilty as anyone in all, in all of this because I think he was contemptuous of Leonard really, um, and so when it was put to him,
1: he's think he's Hagler's pride, ego played a part in that, Brian. You know what I mean? Where he wanted to, you know, do you know what I mean. And, and, and Leonard knew that about him and stoked that fire a little bit.
0: I, I agree with you, Matt, completely. In fact, I think that at the dinner, uh, Leonard was able to glean all of that out of him, um, and 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 knew that this was, you know, that this was how he was. And psychologically, he just did a number on him, um, and so so. So this is the interesting thing, Andy, in terms, of, uh, uh, in terms of the point about where they dropped the ball. Uh, they agreed, they, get, they, they conceded everything to Leonard and his camp. They conceded the, the, bit, the large ring. They conceded the gloves, were 10 gloves that they used. Um, and they conceded on the number of rounds. Because Marvin Hagler believed fundamentally, even though he didn't want to fight anymore, that, you know, come on. Ray Leonard, a Ray Leonard that hasn't boxed in five years, a Ray Leonard that when he did come back against Kevin Howard looked as bad as he did, I can handle Ray Leonard. Um, and, and, and the thing is, on the morning after the fight, Pat Petronelli was shaking his head in Caesar's Palace in the, uh, in the lobby of the hotel, uh, regretting, ruining the fact that they had allowed the fight to be 12 rounds, not 15 rounds, as it could have been. But this is where they, they, they essentially made their made their error. Because Leonard said, OK, it's 12 rounds or nothing. And of course, th- that was just a negotiating position. Hagler could have easily come back and said, well, that's interesting, but I'm the champion. So actually, do you know what? It's 15 rounds or it's nothing. And, it's and, Leonard, like, and Leonard wouldn't have been able to say anything, Matt, because if he wanted a to like, challenge, and you know, that's what it it's is. Like what
1: we, it's a bit like what we see with... In recent times, with Mayweather and even now Canelo, where they're exploiting and abusing their probably you know financial pulling power to manipulate and dictate all the terms
0: completely, completely. And and it's very interesting how uh, when you have that position of power, you know you you you, you can use it, but 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 actually uh, Hagler in his camp didn't, um, which which is really interesting. Why why didn't why didn't he say uh, no no. It's, it's interesting what you say 12 rounds or no fight actually uh, it's 15 rounds take it or leave it uh, and they never did and, and that was a big mistake that they made
2: Okay, so Matt's got to shoot off in a minute, so we'll. Uh, I think he's. I think he's off to arrange a night out with Canelo to uh, to, to strip him <laughs> down and get, 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 get all the goss, goss on him, <laughs> and uh, and then tempt him back into the ring. That's a. I've, I've seen. It, I've seen him pondering it. He's been mulling it over during the course of this conversation. Um, <laughs> do, do you do you think, though, Matt? Just before, before you, you go, go. just a final one for you. What's always struck me about this, and, and Brian said at the start that he was kind of seduced by the comeback. and when you look into the tale of this, it's. It's why you're to and fro with it a bit because, because so am I because I like Hagler because he's got the kind of underdog story of the two. But then you find out things about Leonard and you realise that he does too. Then he's making the comeback. Will we ever see a comeback to rival this ever again? Because it's three years out of the ring, jumping up two weight divisions, a detached retina against an absolute killer in Marvin Hagler just to be able to compete let alone get the win is extraordinary. Tyson Fury's comeback was amazing, but this is, I mean, the more I think about it, the more mind-boggling it gets to me that he was able to even think about it, let alone do it.
1: No, it isn't. And, and the only thing I can think of, he must have, at that meal where, you know, Hagler was talking to him about, yeah, he didn't really want to do it anymore. He, got, he obviously got enough vibe off him at that thing where he thought, now nah, I can beat you, you don't, you don't want this anymore. You know, and, and the style and the speed and the movement and everything else. He obviously just fancied it, but you're right. I think in recent times, Tyson Fury is the, the closest to it, but I don't know if we'll ever see, um, you know, if you, if you factor everything in, I don't think we'll ever see a comeback
2: like that. Okay, well, we'll let you go. You've got plans to formulate. You've got you've got schemes on the go. Um, that's uh, you, you can update us. You can update us next week as to as to how that goes. Brian, we'll, we'll carry on for we'll carry on for a bit because we don't want to bring this to uh, to an abrupt end. Um, people can watch the fight themselves if they haven't done already, and and we've outlined how the fight started and and the. And the process around the the negotiations and and everything else to, that 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 went into it. That's the kind of the eye of the storm, and it's a very absorbing fight to watch too. So, give it a score as well. That's 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 always an interesting thing to do. Never ideal when when you know exactly what's happened and the and the talking points around it. But but I quite like scoring old fights that that are that are contentious. Uh, I might go back and do it do it myself actually over the next the next few days. But what was the aftermath like? Because Leonard has pulled off this magic act were the people on the inside of it press wise I mean outside of, of of Hagler's immediate team who who might have seen this coming who might have looked at him and and seen somehow what, what Leonard saw at that dinner or was it just overwhelmingly in favour of of a Leonard win and people just couldn't of, of a Hagler win and people just couldn't believe
0: it well in the in the uh, I think it was in in the final days ahead of the fight Andy uh, out of 67 boxing writers polled uh, for one of the Las Vegas newspapers, 60 uh, picked Hagler, and I think 52 of them by stoppage. Um, so it was very much overwhelmingly uh, uh, perceived that Hagler was 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 going to win the fight. Um, but of course, people didn't realise that perhaps it was shadow of Hagler would be in the ring with that, with shadow of Leonard in a way, um, because Ray Leonard was not really at his peak at that at that moment either. Um, so, so basically, uh, one of the guys that um, perhaps we should single out George Kimball, who covered his career and actually wrote the book Four Kings. Um, he did actually see in the Mugabe fight that Hyder was slipping. Um, and when you look at the Mugabe fight again, Andy, you know, I suppose it's because the, the, the finish is so overwhelming again from, from Marvin. Uh, the signs were there, though, that perhaps he was not the fighter he once was. Um, but, but no one really had picked up on that or made such a big deal of it. Um, George had, apparently, in the, in the Boston Herald, in his, in his uh, reporting of the Mugabe fight. Um, but he still felt that uh, that Marvin would beat Ray, um, and so did so did practically everybody. And and just just uh, in terms of the fight, the early stages of the fight, Ray Leonard was allowed by Marvin to to box. In the fifth round, Hagler finally caught up with him and landed landed the best blow of the fight—a right uppercut, which hurt Ray significantly. But Marvin didn't realize it, um, and. Uh, and Ray, his legs, he had got into fantastic condition. Uh, so the first four rounds, he, w- he was able to use the ring and outbox him. Then he slowed down. And in the middle rounds, that's when Hagler really got on top. Um, but this is where the, the, the nerve and the courage of Ray Leonard, you've always got to acknowledge. Um, because he's in, this, in the ring with this powerful, domineering middleweight champion who's not been beaten for 11 years. And suddenly Hagler has got the upper hand on him and he, and he traps him in a corner a couple of times in the fight and Leonard's able to fight his way out of it. Um, and, and continue his ploy, which was to fight three 15 second intervals for each round at the start of the round, middle of the round and the end of the round in order to, to impress the judges. Um, and, and and essentially steal the fight, um, which is what he managed to do. Um so, so I guess in the aftermath, um it was dominated it was dominated by the debate, it was dominated by the controversy, um, it was dominated by the fact that um, you had two judges who scored at 115, 113 uh to each fighter uh respectively. Um and then the third judge, Jojo Guerra, from Mexico. Ironically, uh, Harry Gibbs from Bermondsey could have been the third judge, but the Petronellis objected to him. And, the, and, and this myth has, has blown up over, or has, has arisen over the years that uh, they objected to him because of what happened at, at Wembley and the fact that he was an English judge, um, which is nonsense because Harry Gibbs was a judge for Hagler Hearns two years earlier and they didn't object then. Uh they objected for pragmatic reasons. They felt that the English judge might favour the boxer more than they that more than he would favor the, the slugger. And that's why they objected. Um, and but Jojo Guerra then scored the fight a preposterous 118-110 in in Ray's favour. So the the debate afterwards is is very much in terms of um, in terms of what has been done to this uh, long-standing proud champion, split decision, um, probably the only time in boxing history uh, where it has happened in that way—you uh, know, a single round in terms of the in terms of the, not Guerra's card, but the other judge, Dave Moretti—single round goes the other way, and Hagler retains the fight um, on a draw. Um, so. Um, so you had uh, a major debate in terms of a lot of, you know, and this is where this is where uh, the fight is so interesting still because the debate still rages um, because you have people who are really good judges who say that, well, Ray Leonard won the fight actually pretty handily and you have other people who are also good judges who say Marvin Hagler was robbed. I don't think you have that uh, divergence of opinion too many times. You might get... Uh, um, you might get people uh, going for one guy or the other, uh, but, but to have it so split and, you know, so in other words, Hugh Michael Vanny, who regards Ray Leonard as, as the best boxer he was ever uh, he, he ever witnessed from ringside. And he was there at the Rumble in the Jungle. He was there at the first Dali Fraser fight. Um, he, he was 50 years at ringside. Ray Leonard for him was the best fighter he ever saw alive. But he thought that Marvin Hagler got robbed on the night. And in fact, he, and in fact a year after the fight, he, uh, he did an interview with Ray. And it was a very, very brilliant interview, brilliant interview. Um, and right at the end, he saved the final question to, this is where the big admission has got to come, Ray. I thought it was one of the most magnificent performances I've ever seen in boxing to come back after five years and do what you did. I thought on points, Hagler won. And the interview ended very abruptly, Andy. <laughs> um Ray Leonard uh took that very personally and uh and in fact uh um he uh he ended the interview just uh just like that. Um but but uh but there's sorry, I've just uh, just an incoming call, but uh but um but yeah so so the, the debate afterwards was dominated by by the decision and the scoring, uh, but but of course that's where the Petronellis had perhaps dropped the ball in terms of had it gone. Fifteen rounds, Hagler was coming on strong. Perhaps he would have done what he did against Duran, um, but um, but the fight was twelve rounds, and that was maybe the the you know the big deciding factor in the end. But Ray Leonard, if it had been a fifteen round fight, would have trained for fifteen rounds, and uh, and perhaps he would have been able to. Uh, to To be to remain strong over the final three rounds, but he was flagging. You would have to say in the uh, in the latter half of the fight, which is when Hagler came on strong.
2: And in these circumstances, there is usually a huge clamour for a rematch because the promoters see the amount of money that they can make, and so does the casino, and so does television, and so does everybody. But it never happened, and and we never saw Hagler again.
0: Which, which is kind of extraordinary that um, you had this dominant figure in the game. I mean, he was the, he was the main man at this point. Um, and he loses on a split decision to a big rival, whom, as you say, would generate vast sums of money to engage in a rematch with. And actually what Hagler does is he, he, uh, he, he basically heads off into the sunset um, and goes to Italy, embarks on, a, on an acting career, Pretty quickly, um, and uh, and never sets foot in a boxing ring again, um, and and embarks in this quite cosmopolitan lifestyle uh, that uh, that you would have associated more with Ray Leonard. And it was Ray Leonard who made all the comebacks after that, not not Marvin Hagler. Um, I think th- th- there's again all there's different views expressed about this in terms of who wanted a rematch. Um, Ray retired a month after the fight. Uh, Marvin and some of his camp would say that he wanted a rematch and Leonard never wanted it. Ray says that that's nonsense, uh, not true. Um, but the rematch never happened. Um, and whether it would have been any different, I'm not so sure. Uh, given what you know, we now know in terms of where Marvin Hagler was psychologically, and physically, I, uh, I'm not so sure that he would have been able to reverse the result of that uh, first fight. I think maybe he would have, his skills would have eroded even further. Um, and Leonard, even though his skills were not, uh, you know, the, the, the great range uh, that he brought to the ring that he had demonstrated against the likes of Tommy Hearns the first time and against Roberta Duran the first two fights, um, he still retained enough of his arsenal to, to win titles at super middleweight and light heavyweight when he boxed Donny Lalonde, uh, winning both belts on the same night. Uh, the WBC uh, making that uh, ruling in his favour uh, very conveniently. Um, but he also then went on to box a draw with Tommy Herons. Um, say what you will about the legitimacy of that. Uh, he beat Duran in a rubber match. And then he kept on coming back and fought Terry Norris when he shouldn't have been in the ring any longer and Hector Camacho when he was completely done. Um, but but it is extraordinary when you think about it that uh, Marvin Hagler actually walked off into the sunset um, and managed to stay away from the ring. And that's one thing that you would have to give him a lot of credit for. Uh, he didn't succumb to to the kind of seduction that, uh, that often uh, these great champions... Uh, are tempted back uh, at a time when they shouldn't be back in the ring. Um, he uh, he remained away when he uh, when he did walk away, and uh, and I think he takes uh, I think he takes some pride in that actually, um, uh, because uh, because he didn't end up uh, suffering a, a terrible defeat. Um, he didn't end up on his back, and he'd almost always made that vow to his to his mother. Uh, that he'd never, he'd never be beaten up like that and end up uh, flattened uh, by any opponent. Um, and uh, and it's, um, I suppose it's, it's 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 the ultimate irony. I, I think is the best way to put it. Uh, that uh, Hagler managed to stay away, and Leonard could not. Even though surely that was the height of satisfaction, he could never, he could never achieve anything like that again because uh, that was that was climbing Everest. You'd done it. So why put yourself on the line um after that again, particularly when you have the, the detached retina in the background and uh, and you just don't need to do it anymore.
2: That's one of my favourite parts of the story, the fact that that Hagler didn't take the rematch, because people would say surely his pride would have would have forced him into into taking the rematch just as his His pride, I guess, and his his machismo being questioned by the challenge in the very first place, forced him into the ring for the first fight. But for me, it's his pride that kept him out because he could tell after that first fight that it wasn't there anymore. He didn't want it anymore. The monster had gone to sleep and he wasn't coming back, but it must have taken enormous willpower just to just to just to stick to that decision, and then there's the money. There's so much money that can be made, but he wasn't interested in that either. And it's just a brilliant finish to it. It's a brilliant finish to it to have somebody just kind of walk through those saloon doors, wander down Main Street, get on his horse, and as you say, just ride off into the sunset. And 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 I think it's 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 absolutely ideal. So we've kept you for a really long time. <laughs> so um, I think before, I think it was me kept
0: you. <laughs>
2: not at all. Not at all. So. Before we go, just tell us when. Where, just tell us about you know when the book's out, where people can get it, um, all that kind of thing.
0: Well, the book uh, is coming out. It's due to be published on the fifth of November. Um, it's available in uh, Waterstones, W H Smith, Amazon, all the usual outlets. Um, it's um, it's interesting because it explores everything we've talked about and as you know yourself, Andy, uh, very often the most interesting aspects of boxing are the fighter's stories, are the stories away from the ring and, and all of that. Yet you have all that with this, but you also have at the end of it, uh, a fight that, uh, that, that still captivates, that we can still have a conversation about. And here we are, what, 33 years later. Um, and it's almost like it's, um, it's almost like it's as as relevant now as it was back in uh, in the nineteen eighties, um, and uh, so yeah, um, I, I really appreciate you uh, you spending the time on this and uh, and having the conversation about it, and uh, and I've enjoyed it, and hopefully people might enjoy the, the story that's contained inside the the pages of the book.
2: It's been great fun. It's been great fun just just having to look back at it again in some detail. Those eighty super fights for me, they they just can't really be beaten because they provided such amazing plot lines and I, and I know it's it's kind of chimed in with with my age i was born in 1977 so you're a wide-eyed kid at that point and everything's amazing and different particularly when it's uh, when it's happening in in another country and it just seemed kind of i don't know it was like i was watching extraterrestrials at time when 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 you're talking about the types of names that we've been we've been talking about today so it's been it, it's been an absolute pleasure this uh, the book's called the super fight marvelous Marvin hagler against Sugar Ray Leonard and uh, yeah please do please do go out and get it because there's some there's some good there's some really good books being brought out um, at the minute um, around boxing it's always been such a rich source of of writing uh, and reporting uh, because of the stories as Brian said for, for such a long time and I think another thing about those big fights too is that if anything, they get under-told. It sounds like a mad thing to say because they do go down in folklore, but at the same time, there are so many other things that, that come out that people have forgotten over time. And then if you go back and remind them, they just you can unearth things that they've actually never told anybody before. It's, it's, it's an absolute madness. Uh, but we have kept you all on Macklin's Take for longer than we normally do. Not that much longer, um, but hopefully you've enjoyed this. We certainly have. And... Hope everybody stays well. If you can get onto iTunes and give us a a rate and a review, that'll be great. It does make a difference. And we'll catch you again next time.
1: That's right, chumbacasino.com has over hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overplayed by law Eighteen plus Terms and conditions apply See website for details.